We have those seasons in our lives, don't we? we, we there, sometimes those seasons can change very quickly. It's kind of warm. These nice breezes that we've been having lately and you get in the shade on these summer you know, mornings. It's just so nice and so pleasant. Well, we know we've, we've experienced that in physical sense that that can change quickly. Particularly in the fall, you have this warm, nice, sunny morning and nice southerly breezes and that can change. And you can have this bitter, cold north wind that blows. A sudden, but as we think of our lives, there can be a sudden change of circumstances in our lives. A phone call changes everything. A doctor's appointment. A pink slip at work, if they still do that. Whatever the version is today, digital version of that. But you know, you know these moments and your whole life is radically upended. And, and, and so this can happen not just in our lives as individuals. It can happen in a church. It can happen in a community, a city. It can happen in a nation. It can happen in a world as we've seen over the last couple of years. And, but, but it doesn't have to be you know, violent death that, that does this. Any kind of loss, any kind of pain can, can, can bring this. And so there's a, there's a change of, scene, of season excuse me, between Psalms 9 and 10. Remember, we talked, these are, these are conjoined twins in Scripture. These are, there's this one acrostic that's split up between these two psalms, and so they belong together. Psalm 9, though, is this psalm of thanksgiving and trust and praise of the Lord. Yes, in hard times, but it's very upward looking and, and, and it's very positive. But in the middle of that acrostic between Psalms 9 and 10, the winds shift. So we get into 10 and right away in verse 1, we find this is a song, this is a prayer of lament. Why, Lord? Why? Joy is turned into mourning. Laughter is transformed into tears. All of the clarity that we saw last week in Psalm 9 and confidence in the Lord, now it just gives way to confusion. What is this? What is happening? Why is this happening? And so of the 18 verses in Psalm 10, you note a lot of them, 11 of them, in fact, are devoted to this extended description of the wicked. The wicked. Why, why so much ink spilled to describe the wicked and what makes them tick and what, how are they characterized? Well, let me give you an answer. Derek Kidner, who's always quotable in the Psalms, but he says, he says this of this, this dynamic in Psalm 10. He says in Psalm 10, it seems that God stands far off and the tyrant is doing quite nicely. It is a function of the Psalms to touch the nerve of this problem and to keep its pain alive against the comfort of our familiarity or indeed complicity with the corrupt world. It's good. It's, it's hard though. It, Psalm 10, it's touching this nerve this morning. It's keeping that, that pain that we feel as we see the world around us and as we experience it in our lives and as we contribute to it. We're complicit as sinners ourselves. It makes us uncomfortable. It it's meant to aggravate us, to, to anger us, to sadden us, to shake us, to, to shake us, to disturb us. That's Psalm 10. That's what it's doing here. It's, but why does it do that? Just to, just to leave us upset and all frazzled? No, it's meant to drive us to God in prayer. That's what's intended. Peter Craigie, another commentator, he states this dilemma of Psalm 10, I think, very well. So just listen. This isn't on the screen. Just listen. He says, it's easy to say that God exists to affirm that morality matters, to believe in divine and human justice. He says, but the words carry a hollow echo when the empirical reality of human living indicates precisely the opposite. 
the reality appears to be that the wicked have the upper hand and that justice is dormant. At the moment that this reality is perceived in all of its starkness, the temptation is at its strongest to jettison faith, morality, and belief in justice. What good is a faith and a moral life which appear to be so out of place in the harsh realities of an evil world? That's the dilemma. That's touching the nerve, keeping its pain very fresh. And so when David sees evil multiplying all around him and injustice just being flaunted and celebrated, what does he do here? He turns to the Lord. He pours his heart out to God. And lament. Why? Because David's so saintly. Not that necessarily, but he, he, there's this sense of need. There's this, he's developed this learned reflex to look to the Lord in prayer out of desperation. And just an encouragement for us as we think of this. But just when, when, when the wicked seem to have the upper hand, it's helpful to already have well-worn paths to God in prayer. We, we, by God's grace, we want to develop those instincts, those reflexes. David doesn't see his confusion over the prosperity of the wicked and the seeming apathy of God in this psalm as an excuse for just disengaging with God. He's going to go, you know, just stream some Netflix. And that's, that's the answer in these moments. No, but it's this incentive to press into the Lord. To cry out to Him. To plead with Him. And that's my prayer for us, even this morning, that this... These re- reflexes will be strengthened in us. So we, when we, we come into those moments, and we do often in very personal, individual ways, together as a church and even as a nation, as we, we encounter these things, and we see it all the time in the headlines, that these things would drive us to God. Cry out to Him in prayer. Bring these things before the Lord. As Paul Miller said, remember he did, we had the Praying Life Conference here a few years, several years ago. Now, I, I, my prayer is that you would learn to fall in love with your Father again so that praying becomes more natural. And that's going to be really important in times when it seems like the wicked are, have the upper hand and God seems far off. So two focal points for the message today. And the first one is this. Pour your heart out to the Lord when it seems like the wicked are winning. When it seems like the wicked are winning. So David, you know, and he takes all of this time to lay out his dilemma here before the Lord. He uses 11 verses to speak about all of these very specific detailed contours of this wickedness that's all around him. And so I just say to us, don't rush over the hard stuff in prayer. Don't just gloss over. Don't rush over the suffering, the evil. Don't rush over the, the, the sorrow and the pain and the, and the injustice when you pray to God, when you're praying about the darkness you see in our world. Don't just... Quickly cut through it with a few generic lines. There's purpose in laying before the Lord line by line and on all of its contours and seeing what's happening in our world with evil in relation to God. That's what that's what David's essentially doing here. When you I mean just think of in in the context of just human relationships, if you meet a friend for lunch and you're walking through some very difficult thing and problem in your life, what do you do? You spend time explaining and unfolding and and, and, and laying out the situation that you're in and all of its complexity. I mean, if something's really weighing on your life and heavy on your heart, you don't just, you know, kind of say a few words about it and then just let's talk about the weather and sports and this funny meme I saw on Facebook yesterday, that kind of thing. No, you're, you're, you're describing it in detail. 
Well, so it is with the Lord. Here in these 11 verses, David's telling God the particular dimensions of, of this problem of evil that, as he sees it. That's what he's doing. He's, he's, he's giving, you'd say, a composite sketch. Or you know what a composite sketch or a facial composite. This is where the artist down at the police station is, you know, has, has just from the, the um, victim's memory or something like that, a witness's memory uh, of what the, what the suspect looks like so they can search for this you know, violent, dangerous suspect or something like that, use it in their investigation. We have sort of a composite sketch of, quote, the wicked here. As David is recalling, this is, this is what it looks like. I'll just give you a few descriptions of it here. And these will be kind of throughout these first 11, 12 verses here. One, they have big heads. Not bald heads, big heads. Okay? You see this? The, the wicked person they're puffed, is puffed up with pride. Verse 2, in arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Verse 3, the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. And it's interesting is that the wicked person basically worships and his or her wants, desires. He proudly makes a virtue out of whatever it is that he wants to do. That's what the wicked do. Whatever the wicked want to do is defined for them as good. For the simple reason that they want to do it. And you, does that sound familiar in our own day? I mean, we are here right at the beginning of what's called Pride Month. And, and these, the, the, there's this celebration even of, that's how it's described in celebratory terms of setting aside God's good designs for sex and sexuality. Because this is the wants. The wants become the de definition of what's good. Their desire is their good. Their determiner of what's good and praiseworthy is what they want. Verse 4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek God. Verse 6, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. He's basically telling himself, there's nothing to worry about. I'm fine. Nothing bad could happen to me. I'm, an exempt, I'm exempt from adversity. You know, the old expression of, what was it, the 90s or 2000s? I'm too big to fail. I'm untouchable. I mean, again, this is part of what has driven me to these Psalms, as I mentioned last week, and just all that's going on in the world and all of the sorrow that we're experiencing in our own congregation. But I think of the, uh, this, this report within the Southern Baptist Convention and the sexual predators and pastors and ministers and congregations and, and being covered up by other people within the denomination. There, there seems to have been this thought that they're in too important to the church. These, these people were too important to the denomination to be outed and to be held accountable. No, and, and, and these offenders, they, they thought no accusation could stick. Nobody would believe the allegations. They can't be touched. And it's an illustration of what, what David is encountering here. And so that's the first feature of the wicked that stands out in this kind of facial composite. This is this awful delusional pride that it, throughout Scripture, it's so offensive to God, isn't it? So they have big heads. Second, they have foul mouths. Foul mouths. Verse 3, the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Verse 7, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. I mean, Paul cites this verse later in Romans chapter 
3, verse 14, their, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So what's in the heart of the wicked person comes out through their lips. And the words. Rotten speech. Sometimes, again, we, we think that you know, our words are really not that big of a deal. They're not that important. Only the sinful acts. That's what really matters. Words are sort of cast away. But you can't honestly read Scripture and come to that conclusion. Words are not benign. They're not harmless. C.S. Lewis, he writes how he used to be surprised at how wicked words were evaluated in Scripture. He says, I had half expected that in a simpler and more violent age, when more evil was done with the knife, the big stick, and the firebrand, less would be done by talk. But in reality, the psalmist mentioned hardly any kind of evil more often than this one, which the most civilized societies share. It is all over the Psalter. One almost hears the incessant whispering, tattling, lying, scolding, flattery, and circulation of rumors. No historical readjustments are here required. We are in the world we know. And so as we meet Psalm 10, it's not like we have to think, wow, there was a t- this, is, this is so foreign to us. No, this is the world we live in. Third, they, they have insatiable appetites. I'll be quick. Verse, they're, they're fat with greed. Verse 3, the, the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Verse 9, he lurks that he may seize the poor. That's how he advances his purposes of greed by, by exploiting the poor. Next, they, they wear garments of violence. Verses 8 to 10. He sits in ambush in the villages and hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. You have these very graphic word pictures, images the, of the violent wicked. He's like a, they're like an assassin, a murderer, a lion, a, a, a predator, or a hunter. So the common thread that runs through each of these little images is, is that you have this perpetrator who's hiding and who's waiting for the, for the moment to strike the unsuspecting prey. And then he violently strikes. We see this, don't we? You, we experience this. We've probably done our version of this. Like a lion that's you know, hiding in some bush and crouching down and just waiting for that you know, gazelle to walk by or something like that. I don't know. You watch the National Geographic shows. But he's very quiet, very still. Everything seems calm. And then suddenly, it's violent. Striking outbursts, quick movements, unloads in their rage. That's the that's the image. And you're left wondering in those moments, where in the world did this come from? It's a mark of of wickedness. The wicked person is volatile and violent, given to outbursts of rage, unpredictable, frightening, destructive. And verse ten shows that the result of this of violence is that it's successful. It works. The wicked man is able to crush his victims who, quote, fall under his strength. The last kind of part of this caricature of the wicked is that they turn their noses up to God. You could just say they're godless. This comes out in different ways. Verse 4, the wicked do not seek God. Verse 13, the wicked renounce God. 
But interestingly, in the psalm, as David writes, the, the Spirit kind of gives us this insight into the heart of, of the wicked person and, they, and what's actually going on in the hidden thoughts of their hearts. See it in verse 4. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, does not seek God. Then notice the next phrase. All his thoughts are, there is no God. All of his thoughts. So we, we know what he's thinking. The wicked person's constantly telling himself, constantly reinforcing this message to himself. There is no God. There is no God. There's nothing to worry about. There's no God. That's his thoughts. This is the active, habitual pattern of his thought life. We talk about preaching the gospel to yourself daily. And you know, Jerry Bridges has made much of this throughout his whole writing career. But it would just keep telling yourself who you are in Jesus Christ and what God has done for us in Christ. Finding our identity in Him. Preaching the Gospel to ourselves. But here the wicked person is, is preaching this anti-Gospel message to himself. There is no God. There is no God. He wants to live according to his own selfish and sinful desires. And so in order, in order to do that, they have to, he has to keep suppressing this sense of God. Telling himself there's no God. But this is the interesting thing about this psalm that we find and about the, the wicked person. There's this, there's this other strand that runs through the mind of the wicked. And you see it, look down in verses 11 and 13. Verse 11, he says in his heart, God is forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. And down in verse 13, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? Do you notice any contradiction there? This is the same contradiction that lies in the heart and the experience of every unredeemed sinner. All of us before Christ that on the one hand, verse 4, all of his thoughts are there is no God. But in verse 11, he finds himself saying in his own heart, God is forgotten. He's hidden his face. God will not call into account. So which one is it? Is there no God or is God forgotten? Is there no God or is God just kind of a pushover? You, you see the tension here in the psalm. And in the wicked, there's this inner turmoil in the, in the dialogue of the wicked. There's no God. There's no God. Well, there's a God, but He's forgotten. He's hidden His face. There's a God, but He's not going to call me on the account. He won't, he won't see. He won't do anything about it. I, I just, if there's an encouragement to us, brothers and sisters in Christ, listen, the encouragement would be this, when you're praying for people, and when you're sharing the gospel with people that you have compassion for, these image bearers of God, yet they remain in their rebellion against God and people we love, but they're defiant towards God, know that there is this inner struggle going on deep down in their souls. We have this the, kind of the, the veil is pulled back, the curtain is pulled back, and we see the wizard is really not a wizard. There's this dialogue, there's this turmoil going on. However defiant they may seem on the outside, however rebellious they seem, there's always this gnawing underlying question about God that keeps surfacing. So, so the wicked person has to keep, as Paul says in Romans 1, they have to keep pushing this down, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Why? Because the wicked, like all people, were, they're, they're made in God's image and, and, the, and they live in a world that's created by God and we see is, is evidence of Him all over the place. And so constantly suppressing truth about God, trying to convince 
yourself ultimately that there is no God. It's not an easy thing to do. It takes constant effort. And the evidences of God just keep popping up all over the place for the unbeliever. I mean, maybe this is you. This is your experience even this morning. And I would say the Lord has brought you here. And I pray to to have your eyes open to see this about yourself and to come to a reckoning with this reality. Maybe this inner dialogue, this inner turmoil is in you. You're suppressing the truth that God is and He he does see and He does take note. Trying to push Him away, but you can't quite ever succeed. However hard you try to push Him back, He just keeps popping up all over the place. And He's doing it right now. So the wicked has to keep saying to himself, there is no God, because in his heart, within him and his world all around him, everything else is pointing otherwise. And so here's this kind of composite sketch of, quote, the wicked, puffed up with pride, foul mouth, greedy, violent, godless. Before we move on, just a couple other quick applications. One, I would just say, wickedness is not a new phenomenon. This is not a 21st century uh, new reality that we've discovered. It just takes different forms. It's always present. Wickedness, it, it dresses in new and different uh, disguises, but it's, it's nothing new in the history of the world. In one generation, wickedness can be descri- disguised in hypocrisy. I think of Jesus' day with the Phariseeism in certain contexts. And then another. Another, another generation, wickedness just proudly closed itself in just absolute defiance. And, and, and so it's not just generationally, but different parts of the world. So you take things like, um, you know, grumbling. You know, for us in the West, we grumble about gas prices right now. We grumble about, you know, long lines at restaurants. And these are the kinds of things. You go into some, any remote village in this world, some third world country, and, and there's other things they'll, they'll grumble about. I mean, these things are everywhere. And, and, and so pride, selfishness, fear of man, jealousy, love of money, lust, anger. These are perennial, universal issues. All places, all times, the expression will look differently. In God's common grace, some of the times these things are suppressed and, 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 and we, we see that, but it's here, it's present. And another application. You say, whenever you see these in your own life, Take that seriously. Don't just rush past that. Deal with it by God's grace. If there are things that, if these things, these are the things that characterize the wicked, I hope you would say, I don't want this, I don't want this growing and having room and space to just take root and thrive within my own heart and my own life and my, my words. Confess it to God. Turn from it. Do you see pride rising up? Bring that before the Lord. Rotten speech, words, gossip, slander, uh, abusive talk. Maybe not even spoken, but the thoughts are just lurking in your heart, waiting to come out. Don't play around with these things. They're deadly poisons. Treat them as such. Because if they take root in your soul, they they can cripple you. So there will be times when it seems like the wickedness, the wicked are winning. That, that's what this psalm is showing us. You watch the news, another atrocity. More acts of violence. Another scandal. More corruption. Sexual sin flaunted. And on and on and on. 
We don't want to just be kind of content, uh, or excuse me, we don't want to be content to be naive, um, naive moralists who just say things like, well, when I was a kid, it was a lot better. Or, you know, it was better back in the day. There may be some truth to that, but we want to be biblically minded Christians who pour our hearts out to the Lord. We face this when it appears that the wicked have the upper hand. So we need to cry out to the Lord when the wicked seem to be winning. Secondly, second kind of focal point here in the, in the psalm, pour your heart out to the Lord when it seems like the Lord is aloof. When it seems like God is far away. Cry out to Him. Pray. So you notice where the whole psalm begins. Dave begins in verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? And as the title of in many of our translations, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? This, this double why that begins the psalm, it, it highlights the struggle for the psalmist here, for David. And you notice the second person here, the second person pronoun, you. What is that showing? This isn't just some philosophical, I don't even know what I'm saying, I can't even speak in, philosophical debate in some college religion class. That's not what this is. This is prayer. He doesn't begin with some, hmm, if God is all-powerful and good, why do bad things happen in my life? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, why do you do this, God? Why are you far away? Why are you hiding yourself in times of trouble? He's talking to the Lord. This isn't just something they're reasoning in some kind of, again, philosophical group. This is a devotional dilemma. This is a matter of faith, not just some intellectual quandary that he's going through here. And, and listen, I would be amazed, I would be astounded if there was a single person here this morning who could honestly say that they've never felt like this. Never had thoughts like this. Never come to the place. I have no idea what David's talking about or what you're talking about, Justin. I, I can't even conceive of to, to think that God might somehow stand far away at some point in my life. Maybe if you're two years old, I'll give you a pass. You're probably not lying to me. I don't know. But you, you know what this is, don't you? You know what this is. You, you want to pray. You, you feel your need for God. And yet He seems so, so distant in that moment. The wicked seem to be winning. God seems to be aloof. It's a real experience. And this is exactly where David is. Now a quick encouragement along those lines is if King David, the man after God's own heart, if he knew this experience, that does help me. Not because David's perfect in any, in any way like that, but John Calvin said it tends to greatly lighten the grief if we consider that nothing befalls us at this day which the church of God has not experienced in days of old. He, he goes on writing, again, he's writing right in the heat of the Reformation, 16th century, and he says, what we're experiencing, the difficulties that the church is going through now it's always been this way. And so it goes all the way back to David as he's writing Psalm 10. It predates David when he's writing Psalm 10. We're engaging through prayer, brothers and sisters, in the same conflict as you face these difficulties and sorrows and, and attacks in your own life and as a church as we experience this together and as, 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 as we face these things in our wider culture and in our world. 
So how does the Holy Spirit lead us? How does the Spirit lead David and then us to pray in light of all that he's laid out before God? He's unburdening his soul before the Lord. Well, just under three headings. This is kind of the framing of his prayer here. He's, he's, he's asking God, help me to stop, stop thinking like the wicked. Stop thinking like the wicked. So there's a very interesting turn in the psalm. So it's almost as if for as if 11 verses of thinking about the wicked sort of, you know, wake David up. He's like slapping himself as he, as he comes to the end of that description to this renewed faith in God. And so you notice in the start of the prayer, again, he's saying, why, O Lord? Why do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself? He's pouring out his heart. God, you seem so distant. You don't seem to care. You don't seem to notice. You seem so uninvolved. You don't seem to be doing anything about this. And then at some point in the psalm, it's like it begins to dawn on David's soul as he's singing here that what he just said about God hiding, about God not looking, about God not seeing, wait a minute, that's exactly what the wicked believe. And I just drifted into this awful way of thinking about the Lord. And so do you see it? David says, verse 1, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Then in verse 11, what are the wicked saying? God has hidden his face. He will never see it. And so it's as if David says, wait a minute. I've, I've just been saying and thinking the same thing that the wicked says and thinks. What am I doing? And the very act of praying is the means that the Holy Spirit re- uses to <coughs> renew this faith and to change David right there in God's very presence. He wakes up and to what has been happening in his soul. He says, look, the wicked dismiss God. Guess what? That's what I've been doing. David, stop thinking like the wicked. And he's brought to this realization by prayer. And so I just say, we are more shaped by the world around us than we ever realize. I think David's recognizing that. And so God changes us as we look to him, though, in prayer. This is why we need these well-worn paths to God in prayer, particularly for times like this. So that's just kind of the first aspect of this praying as he turns to God when he seems far away. Second kind of strand of this prayer is, 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 Lord, help me to start believing you. Start believing God. So you notice the change in verse 13. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? There's this turn though. But you do see. For you note mischief and vexation. So the wicked says in his heart, oh, God has hidden his face. But David says, no, but God, you do see. You see. That's my conviction. And so the wicked says in his heart, verse 11, God has forgotten. But David says, verse 14, nope, you don't forget. You, In fact, you note mischief and you note vexation. You're keeping a log. You're keeping a journal. You have a spreadsheet. And, and you're keeping track of all of it. You have perfect records. Nothing will escape your eyes, Lord. You keep note. And so we see these, and, and under this, as he's believing God and as God's growing this faith in him, there are these driving convictions that David uses when he's praying at this moment when the wicked seem to be prospering and when, and when God seems far off and these three truths that strengthen his faith, he notes God's eye, he notes God's hand in his throne. So these, these convictions foster faith. God's eye, he sees, verse 14. Again, we already recognize this. You, you do see 
The wicked think you don't, but you do. Nothing is ever hidden from you. Listen, friends. God sees. He sees every injustice that's been done to you. To His church, His people, everything that's happened in the history of the world. And He knows everything that's happened to you. If you've been oppressed, mistreated, abused, cheated, slandered, lied to, taken advantage of, wronged, God knows all about it. This is David takes this is strengthening to his faith to say, God, you see, your eye is perfect. But also God's hand, he's strong. He, he doesn't just see it and be, ah, oh, but I'm helpless to do anything about it. No, verse 12. He says, he says to the Lord, Arise, O Lord. Lift up your hand. Verse 14. You take note of mischief. You see it. Why? That you may take it into your hands. And when you see God's hands, many of you know this, it's, it's strength. That's what he's describing here. This is why in verse 15, when David says, Break the arm of the wicked, he means break their power. David's saying, use, use your divine power to break the power of the wicked. That's a, that's a prayer of David that's wonderf wonderfully fulfilled in part in his life and he sees this and it's, we know that now in part, but it will be fulfilled fully when Christ returns, brothers and sisters. If you're uncertain, there's an eschatology class right in the hall this morning. You can, can learn about that today. But as long as we are in this world, there is, there is the challenge of wickedness. But God in His, in His mercy, He restrains it that it's not as dark as it gets, it's not as dark as it could be. We under, I hope we understand that. It's not as bad as it could be. Only in hell will the full extent of wickedness be fully known. And however great the challenges of wickedness you and I experience, and I'm not saying this to minimize them at all, brothers and sisters, but, but you can be certain if it was not for God's grace, it would be all-consuming. And the fact that you're here and you're breathing and there's hope is testifying testifying to God's mercy. And so the great gift of prayer, though, is that we can, we can ask Him to intervene. God, don't stay your hand. Arise! Arise! Deal with this. Give us relief. Don't hold back anymore, Lord. And we can ask, as verse 17 says, for the strength to stand against the evil that we face. It's a great prayer for us. So God's I, God's hand, and then third, God's throne. This is, this is why we can start, we can believe in Him. Because He's sovereign. Verse 16, the Lord is King forever and ever. Faith sets its eye on, its gaze on the throne of God. The throne is the, is the Lord's sovereignty, His reign. He, no one can thwart His hand. This is this non-negotiable reality that, that is, is true no matter what the wicked seem to think about it or say about it. What they, how free they seem to be to, to do the mischief and the vexation that they want to cause. The reality is God is on His throne. And it's just true. I'll give you a little illustration of this that I think is, is, is helpful. I'm just going to read it. When the early 20th century novelist Lloyd C. Douglas was a university student, he lived upstairs in a boarding house. Downstairs on the first floor lived an elderly, infirm, and retired music teacher. According to Douglas, they had a morning ritual. 
Douglas would come down the stairs, open the old man's door, and ask, Well, what's the good news? The elderly man would pick up his tuning fork, tap it on the side of his wheelchair, and say, That's middle C. It was middle C yesterday. It will be middle C tomorrow. It will be middle C a thousand years from now. The tenor upstairs sings flat. The piano across the hall is out of tune. But my friend, that is middle C. Well, the Lord on His throne is more eternally, more stubbornly true than middle C is, brothers and sisters. And that's good news to us, isn't it? To His children. No matter what our experience is, no matter what we're going through, the Lord is on His throne. He's, he sees. He is strong to, to, to work. So stop thinking like the wicked. This is informing His prayer. Start believing in God. And then I would just say, stand with Christ in the school of prayer. Stand with Christ. Listen, Jesus would have known this psalm. Jesus would have loved, no doubt loved this psalm. What would it have meant to Jesus? Just think about it. What, what, how, what use would it have been to Him during His earthly ministry in particular? Did Jesus ever know what it was like to feel like the wicked were winning? Had the upper hand. Did Jesus ever know what it was to feel that the Father was far off? Did Jesus ever know what it was to ask the question out of the agony of his soul, why, Lord? Christ knew the greed of the wicked. He went and stood in the temple and he that, that was turned into this marketplace. He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Christ knew what it was to stand alone when the wicked seemed to be prospering and, and winning. He said to His enemies in Luke 22, verse 53, this is your hour when darkness reigns. Christ knew what it was for the wicked to, to like that lion, to just kind of lay in the, in the shrubs and lay in the bushes and wait to ambush. He says, day after day I was in the temple, but now you come after me with swords and clubs as He was in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knew what it was to ask why. To find Himself in great darkness. My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? The Father seemed far off. And yet Christ knew what it was to trust the Father even in the face of overwhelming evil. Into Your hands I commit My Spirit. In other words, Jesus knew everything that gave birth to Psalm 10. He, he knows it from the inside, we could say. He, he knew it more deeply than David knew it. He knew it more deeply than any, of, any one of us ever will. And He's able to pray this psalm with you. Is there some injustice that you've suffered? Or are suffering? Is there someone who's out to get you? Is, are, are you despairing over the apparent prosperity and the pride of of, of wicked people? Are you overwhelmed by just the swelling evil it seems like in our world? Listen, you can meet Christ. And Christ can meet you in Psalm 10. I hope that He has. As you use this for this, for this framework of coming to Him and, 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 the, and the presence of God, pouring out your heart to Him, asking for Him to help. And here's the most wonderful thing of all in, in all of that as we think of Jesus in this psalm is the, that Christ not only endured wickedness, but He triumphed over it. 
Amen? I mean, remember how on the day of Pentecost, we've been in Acts, and so it's been a, been a, little, been a minute, but Peter said to the crowd, you know, you, with the help of wicked people, you put him to death by nailing him to a cross, but God raised him up. God raised him up. The, the wicked didn't triumph over Jesus. Hell brought its worst, but Christ proved He was triumphant when He rose from the dead so that Jesus is in fact, brothers and sisters, the King who reigns forever and ever. Psalm 10 testifies to. And one day He's coming back in power and in glory. And, and when He does, He's going to make an end of all wickedness. Verse 15, he's, he's going to break the arm of the wicked. He's going to call the wicked to account until you find no more. There's a day coming when it, all injustice will be gone. He's going to do that by the power of His hand. What a day that's going to be. That's hope for us. Listen, right now, this is the message we need to hear. The good news for you and me this morning is that for every one of us is that the, the hand of the risen Lord Jesus is lifted up to us, not in judgment, but in mercy to you today. In love. He offers Himself to us for no matter what you've done. No matter what you will ever do. And in His grace and in His mercy, He says, you can come to Him. You can come to Him. You can turn to Him. You can trust Him. You can become a new creation by His grace and His power today, brothers and sisters. As you look to Him by faith and you trust in the completed work of of atonement that He made by dying in the place, absorbing the punishment that you deserve for your sins on the cross and conquering that wickedness through His resurrection. And brothers and sisters, this table that we're going to come celebrate, it points to this reality. So we'll come and eat and drink in just a moment. Let me pray. Lord, would You help us as we, as we gather at the table to feast and celebrate the reality for all who are here in Christ, Lord. That we, it's not that justice has been satisfied or set aside, but it's that justice has been satisfied in Christ at the cross. And I pray for anyone here today, while they can let the cup and the, and the, and the bread pass by, this is, this is a, a feast for the saints here, Lord, and there'll be no shame, no embarrassment, but that they would, that this table would even preach to them the sufficiency of what you've done for us in Jesus. That they would look to you for faith, come to you, clinging to nothing, no good merit of their own. Say, I don't have anything to deal with this wickedness in my own heart, to face the wickedness in this world. But I, I, I look to Jesus, and I need him. I pray that anybody would do that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.